Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 269, and today we're talking about a variety of different topics, including some CWD current event news type stuff. We're talking about shed hunting and talking western whitetails with a couple westerners. All right, folks, got to jump in here with a quick uh, pre-show to the pre-game show uh, story of sorts. Basically, the other night, uh, Dan and I recorded a very interesting introduction, 42 minutes of great conversation on a slew of topics. We kind of positioned this podcast as a two-parter. So that first one, we talked about CWD in the news. We talked about our latest shed hunting exploits and plans. We talked a little bit about our dreams about doing things out west. Very interesting chat, but about halfway through that chat, all of a sudden I noticed that my application that records my podcast was making a weird flash, and I go and I see that instead of recording our entire conversation, it recorded our entire conversation in one-second increments. So a small part of my soul died at that point. I cried a little bit, and I told Dan, I'm like, Dan, I don't think this has been recording on my end properly. <laughs> and he said, well, no worries, man. I've got it recorded on my side. So I, I sighed. A huge, it was a huge relief. I get that file back from Dan after we recorded everything, and I hear that there's some still little tiny glitch from my recording issue on my end. So I sat here this morning thinking, okay, do we ditch this whole thing, and do I just record a little boilerplate you know, two-minute intro, or do we run with the 42-minute interesting interview me and Dan did together and just have a little bit of that audio glitch and ended up deciding to leave that in there because I think we cover some important and interesting stuff, especially when it comes to a lot of stuff going on in the CWD world right now. I wanted to address some important issues there. I think it's worth keeping in there. So if you don't like the way things sound, and it sounds a little bit different than usual, but if you don't like it, feel free just to fast forward about 40-some minutes, and you will get to part two that sounds terrific, and that is our Western Whitetail interview with Eric and Zach, and I think you'll love that. But if it sounds okay to you, stick around for this one. Me and Dan have a great, longer-than-usual intro covering some interesting topics. So thank you for your patience. Thank you for your understanding, and uh, here's the show. 
All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And um, today we've got a fun episode for you. It's kind of a kind of a two-parter, I guess, really a two-parter. Um, in part one, I got my buddy and co-host extraordinaire Dan Johnson here with me. Dan, how are you? I'm good. Here, listen to this once. Do you hear this? Uh, static. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of static. That's my nub rubbing against my microphone. <laughs> you're, okay. Just your, your tenth finger that's not there yeah, is that, rubbing up. That nub. That, that nub. nub. <laughs> exactly. What you're about. Okay. okay. Do we need to start the podcast over? No, we'll keep that. Okay. <laughs> so Dan's rubbing his uh, fingerless finger on the microphone, which means he's excited. That's good. Um, so. <laughs> So since you're here with me for a little bit, Dan, I wanted to uh, do a sort of a, a longer intro, maybe than we usually do a slightly longer pregame show to catch up a bit on what's going on with us and uh, some things going on in the whitetail world, especially because in the last week, week and a half, there's been a whole lot in the news about deer, specifically CWD, talked about in the mainstream news and going viral on the internet and a whole bunch of stuff there. So I want to clarify some things about what's going on there. Um also want to talk shed hunting a little bit because, uh, you know, it's that time of year. I want to see if you've done anything since we talked last time and see what's going to happen for the upcoming shed rally event. Um, and then the main gist of this episode, Dan, um, unfortunately, after you've got a bail, we're going to bring a couple guys from Montana uh, to talk about Western hunting, specifically Western whitetail hunting. Um, so I thought you and me might have a few thoughts to share on that as, you know, I know both of us are planning Western hunts of, of one sort or another. Yep. Um, and then like a part two of that is then going to be, we're going to get Eric Siegfried and Zach Sandow from Onyx. They live out in Montana. They're going to join me to kind of share a local Westerners perspective on hunting whitetails. Um, you know, you and me have talked a little bit in the past about my experiences out there, but it's always been, you know, how I've taken a Midwest whitetail approach and applied it to Western whitetails. Um, for one of the first times now, I'm going to chat with someone who lives out there about how they approach hunting whitetails, which is kind of unique, pretty interesting, I thought. Right. Um, so that is kind of what we've got in store today, kind of a podcast, uh, two parts, and uh, I think it should be a conversation. So that's the plan. Um, are you down with that, Dan? I'll tell you this. If I was to hack into any software in the world, I would hack into Onyx <laughs> and I would hack in to guys who are really good hunters and I'd find all their spots. That is how I would cheat the system. Now, would you, would you, I'm going to say that you would use this power for good and you would look at the good spots and you wouldn't go and hunt their spots. You would simply use it to build up a database in your mind of how to choose the right spots in the future. That's, that's what you mean, right? That is, that couldn't be more far from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. <laughs> uh, like I would be at so many places at so many times that people would start to guess that I actually hacked the Onyx system. Oh, like, dude, only I know about this spot. How is this dude here? And at my last spot, and like I start running into people like in different states at the exact We're same over. location. <laughs> That'd be one amazing practical joke to like if you somehow got your buddies on X waypoints and like you happen to know someplace that he doesn't really care about and so you just start like messing with him. I would like to do that. If you and me ever hunt together, if this IO idea pans out, I'm totally gonna pull that off. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, dude, there's a lot of interest. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a good tool. No doubt about that. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll chat with them here in a minute. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's talk current events, current events first, I guess, before we touch on anything else. Um, CWD. Yes. Um, we, you've seen the, the, all the hubbub in the news, right? Yep. Yeah. So for folks in the whitetail community, you've probably seen stuff on Facebook popping around. You've probably seen it on the mainstream news even now too. Um, but there've been two CWD related stories that have been going all over the place. Mm-hmm. I've been getting a lot of people reaching out, asking for like my thoughts on it, um, or, asking for us to clarify things for people or set the record straight. So I want to take a second here to do that. Um, so the first piece I think we need to talk about is the zombie deer articles. Um, you've seen that as well. Yep. Correct? Yep. So there's this, there was a interview done a little while back with, I believe it was a professor from the University of Minnesota. Um, and he made a comment somewhere along the lines of um, – in. Speaking about CW in general, um, he mentioned the fact that while no one has been proven to get – no human has been proven to kept to to, uh, to get CWD from eating CWD-positive deer, he made the claim um, in so many words – I'm paraphrasing here – but he made the claim that he thought it was possible or likely or inevitable at some point that it could jump the barrier. said something along those lines. Right. Um, Nothing like that has been proven true, I wanted to point out. But he made a comment like that, and then someone wrote a news article headline about talking about how there's these zombie deer walking all over 24 states. Um, and then this thing just blew up, and like every news site out there, every media network was reporting zombie deer disease. Um, really kind of freaking non-hunters out. I had a lot of people that aren't actually hunters ask me, like, what is this thing? Are we all going to get sick? Um and it, it's an interesting thing because you and I both, Dan, we've talked many times here and on our you know, elsewhere about how CWD is something that you know we need to look at seriously, right? It's something that people should be paying attention to. Um, but I think what happened here is that it has got blown out of um, blown out of context and blown out of proportion, and you know, blown into this thing that, that it probably isn't, um, which is probably just as dangerous as pretending CWD doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think the main point here is if you have anyone asking about these zombie deer articles, um, let them know that CWD is something that is real. It is something that's serious. It's something that could have negative ramifications in the long run for deer populations and deer hunting, so we got to take it seriously. Um, but... Um, you know, it has not been proven. Isn't there's not been a single instance yet where CW has crossed the species barrier to humans? And there have been you know, tens of thousands of deer probably eating, probably thousands of deer that have been eaten that were positive, and you know, there's been no case yet. So, you know, that's that is good, right? That's good that hasn't happened yet. And it's not to say that, you know, I, I guess you can't say one way or another if it could happen because I'm not a scientist, but I, I certainly. I don't know what have we talked about this, Dan. Would you eat if you if you shot a deer and you got it tested and it was positive, would you eat that deer? See, that's that's kind of crazy. Uh, for for me, here's what I will say. I don't have to test my deer right now, right? Should I test my deer? Maybe I don't, right? But 
if I knew that the there, that there is even a one percent chance that you know, or less than a one percent chance that for some reason it skips to a you know it could potentially skip to a human, which there has been no scientific uh, you know data to back that. Um, it 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 does have me thinking though. I I I I feed all the deer I kill you know, to my family, uh, my kids eat the deer meat. And that's the only thing that would concern me. However, if I knew for a fact, after I shot it, the deer was CWD positive, I don't know if I would. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, you know, it would kill me to do that, you know, yeah. to kill it, to kill a deer and then just have to throw it all in the trash. I yeah. mean, that would be, I would absolutely hate that. But to your point, um, I would be, even though, like you said, there's no, nothing shown it can happen. You still have that little in the back of your mind that says I could be the first or, you know, this could be something that takes decades and decades and decades to show up. And all of a sudden, you know, we find out, um, something's going on there and the center for disease control, um, does recommend that you not eat CWD positive deer out of a kind of an abundance of caution. You know, they're, they're uh, saying all the same things we've said. It has not been proven to jump the species bear, but they recommend caution and, and not doing it. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I did have um, three, three, three deer, two of which I killed, one that a buddy killed um, off of the main Michigan property I hunt. We had tests for CWD um, and and nothing positive. So, um, so that's good. But it's definitely something I'm thinking about and, you, you know. It would be very scary, and it would change a whole lot of things if someday we found out that it did jump the bear. Then that changes everything. Yeah, and that's a that's a really really bad scenario. That I hope never happens, and that would that take this whole thing to some different level. So let's just hope that never happens, and we're not gonna have to worry about that. But um, but I think it just you know it's something to be thinking about. Which leads us to the second big thing on the C to front. Um, within the news lately, which was this video about a cure for CWD. Now, did you watch that video, Dan? So I read something about how uh, this guy says that it can be cured and that uh, he thinks, or I don't know if he thinks, or the research showed, that his research showed that bacteria and the prion have something in common or it's like uh, the prion travels through a bacteria or vice versa or something like that. And then that's as far as I went. Okay, yeah, so you're, you're getting there. Um, the basic gist of the video, um, and this was like at a press conference, and the video that went viral that everyone was getting shared, it was just like an embedded video without a title, without – you couldn't see like a lot of details about who this was or what was going on, but just looked like an official-looking person in front of like an official-looking like Capitol building or something. And then you could see there was like a, an insignia on the podium it just had like a very formal official look. So if you were watching this without knowing anything, it almost looked like someone from the state of Pennsylvania, like Pennsylvania DNR or someone was making this announcement. It had a very official, real, valid, verified kind of feel to it. Um, but that was not actually the case. This is not the state of Pennsylvania's you know, DNR fishing game. This is not the United States Fish and Wildlife or anything making this announcement. This was just a guy who works for a spokesman for um, an organization called the Unified Sportsman of Pennsylvania. Um, so I don't, I don't know anything about this organization. I don't know 
anything positive about it or negative about it. So I can't take a stance on this at all. I'm simply saying that this was this was a an organization of deer hunters making this statement. Um, and the, the issue with it, well, well, I guess let me explain the statement first. The statement was, like you said, that uh, they're claiming there's this cure for CWD based off some research that was happening down um, – God, I should have double-checked this. Louisiana State University, I believe, um, a Dr. Bastion. And this uh, professor down there, researcher down there, believed that he found um, that the CWD, the prions that we have all seen be associated with CWD and that we believe are the cause and the transferring agent of CWD, his theory was that they are actually not what is transferring CWD, they are actually just like a symptom of CWD and that there was actually a bacteria called a spiroplasma bacteria. That is the infective agent. And then prions were like a, a side effect of it almost. So we were just kind of seeing the side effect of it everywhere um, while it's this bacteria that is actually the issue. And since it's a bacteria that's causing the issue, he said that, hey, I can develop essentially a, a cure to this that can be, that can be fed to deer. Um, we can develop all sorts of different things to, to deal with in, in the captive servant industry. We could apply something in mass quantity to wild deer. Um, and then this spokesman, whoever this was, um, was then saying not only will this cure CWD, um, this could also be used to cure other degenerative brain diseases um, such as Kreutzfeldt's Jakob's disease in humans um, and all these other different things like that. So it could deal with like scrapies and sheep and mad cow disease and, and cows and very, very – broad, impressive statements like how this is going to change the world. Um, and it was really exciting hearing it because like, yes, that is what we need. We need some kind of real solution to this issue of CWD. Um, the bar is that no one's been able to back up this research that this Dr. Bastion has done. I guess, as I understand, I've checked with a number of different people in this field who have said that it's a really interesting theory. We wish it worked, but no one's been able to replicate it. No one's been able to verify it. No peer review has approved it. Um, you know, basically everyone I talked to said we wish this was true. We wish this could be proven, but no other expert in the space agrees with him and can in any way, um, you know, replicate it yeah. um, and, and show it to be true. So, I mean, I hope that maybe there's something new. I hope that maybe that. Um, they're onto something and, and eventually there's going to be a cure. But the kind of uh, myth buster thing right now is that this viral video, it's not as proven as the gentleman in the video would like you to think. Yeah. Um, it seems like a cure for CWD is not a sure thing. This has not been proven or replicated or verified or reviewed in any kind of way. And, um, you know, let's cross our fingers and hope something does happen. But right now it's not there. Right. And the, and the crazy thing about this all is – I knew after getting into it and, and going to a secondary source, and I think the National Deer Alliance uh, made a post about, listen, this would be nice, but it's not accurate, right? We don't know if this is accurate or not. Number one, I think the video is really old. And number two, it scares me. Like me, I did my further research. I saw this. I questioned it. I went to a reliable source like the National Deer Alliance. And the next thing I did, you know, or, or I did a little research on my own, but people are literally commenting like, oh, we don't need to worry about CWD anymore. You know, Ted Nugent was right or, or, you know, like, 
all these people who are, were worried about like they they took that as problem solved and it's not a problem solved yeah it's this is a great example of kind of um clickbait clickbait in social media news issues i mean you just can't take what you see on the internet for truth yeah. right at the gate you need to do a little bit of verifying like you said a little fact checking check reputable sources folks that are you know verify with some kind of level of expertise um and see what's really going on i think this is one of those cases that a lot of people wanted to be true so much <laughs> that maybe they're just like yes that's what i've been waiting to see um and want to celebrate it but i think the kind of the moral of the story from this video and then the zombie deer story the big takeaway for me at least is that these were just great reminders again of the one single thing that i think we can all agree on about cwd and that's it we need more answers. We need more research. We need more studies done to find out what really is happening. Yeah. Um, because there's just there's too many question marks right now. There's so many controversies around it. We just need to get some solid stuff figured out. So right. um, there was one uh, step in the right direction. There was a bill introduced to the House and the Senate earlier this month um, called the Chronic Wasting Disease Transmission and Survey Study Act, which essentially um, – if this passes, this would authorize a, a special federal study done to help determine how CWD spreads, how it could pre be prevented in the wild, and it'll you know help divert funds towards something like this too. So every time that we see a bill like this that's going to fund get funding for research, I think that's something that us in the white belt community we have to kind of rally around. Any, yep. it's, it's a simple thing whether you want whether you whether you believe in everything that's being said about CWD or whether you are in the, the Tanujan camp and, and want to claim it's not a thing, whichever way you are, um, we want answers. And research is the only way we're going to get those answers. So I think that's something we can come together on and, and support funding and support things like that. So this is the Chronic Wasting Disease Transmission and Survey Study Act, which is a mouthful. So you could quite simply remember S382. That's the bill. S382. You can search that online and get the full details on it. But uh, point being, reach out to your senators or your representatives and let them know, hey, this is something that matters to us. Um, there's a whole lot of deer hunters out there in our state. This is something that matters a lot to the outdoor economy and community. Um, give them a little bump. I think this is one of those things that we can maybe make a difference on. Absolutely. So, um, Absolutely. That's CWD uh, PSA for the day. Um, moving on to more fun things, shed hunting. Have you done any shed hunting since we talked last? Uh, dude, I got six inches or eight inches of snow in my front yard, and that's after like a day and a half of thawing. Ugh. Now, however, the good news is is down where uh, I hunt, there's no snow on the ground right now, which really? has me a little worried. Like other people might get to my spots before I do. Wow, I assumed that you were going to have all sorts of snow down there. Nope. Uh, the there's a like almost like a clear cut band that came through Iowa, uh, and uh, like the lower parts got a couple inches. Uh, we got about eight, and uh, we still and then we that a couple more uh, systems came through, dumping four at a time. While down south didn't get any, so. Um, other than the big drifts, you know, most of the fields are clear and we got some rain that helped out the, the melting process as well. Oh man. Well, that might change my plans. Cause I was thinking that Iowa was going to be a complete bust for shed rally. Yeah. I was thinking about going down to Southern Ohio. Yeah. Now here's the deal though. I think 
there's two more chances in the next 10 days for us to get snow. Um, and I don't know what part of the states are going to get it yet, but it's in the forecast. Okay. Well, I'm just going to keep on texting you and bugging you. Yeah. Um, and hopefully there's not, if, if there's not snow, can I meet up with you at some point uh, during that time period? You yeah. can be around. I know, I I know you so. got stuff going on, but hopefully we can find a little time to get some get some walking in. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what the schedule is right now, uh, and we're gonna we're talking about a little bit about that um, uh, here in a couple minutes. But uh, the Iowa Deer Classic is this weekend, and I have to go uh, work, do a little work there, and then the following weekend uh, is something that I have to attend, uh, and is also Shed Rally. So uh, I have. It's going to be the next two weekends are going to be really busy. Yeah. Well, we'll. Uh, I'll be out there at some point soon, hopefully. Yeah, so. And if I have to take, exciting. Hey, if I have to take a day off of work, I'll take a day off of work, man. Hey, speaking of, and and I hope that happen. Um, speaking of shed rally. Uh, so we're doing a little thing with Wired Hunt, which you should bust out your old Wired Hunt hat or shirt, Dan, because I figured there's a whole lot of folks that listen to Wired Hunt that also participate in Shed Rally and want to figure out some way to kind of thank people who have been supporting Wired to Hunt, rocking the Wired to Hunt hats and T-shirts and things like that. And actually, interestingly, you and me Shed Hunted together during Shed Rally right when the current Wired to Hunt logo, hats, and shirts first came out. Do you remember that? Yes. I was rocking, I think, Wired to Hunt hat and T-shirt, and we were Shed Hunting your spots. And that was the first year of Shed Rally. We were walking all over the place, and we'd just be like, Shed Rally! Oh, yeah. Uh, Corey was there, too. <laughs> yeah, Corey was there. Yep, that was when Corey oh, fell man. asleep in the truck. While yeah, we were Corey, Corey fell asleep, and you guys weren't you guys weren't very good at walking uh, straight lines. And I remember you guys found a shed at the exact same time. And then you looked mm-hmm. at each other and you guys were both so polite. You're like, Oh man, you can, you can get it. And then he was like, no man, no, you can have it. You can have it. No, no man, <laughs> you, you can, you can get it. You can get it. Yes. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah, that was, I remember that well. <laughs> um, so, so that is when Jeff really began. Now it's like five years later. Yeah. And, um, so there's a long way of saying during Shed Rally, right, it's Whitetail Properties deal where they get a whole bunch of folks, you know, encourage everybody out there to go and Shed Hunt together on the same weekend. And if you post photos and videos with the hashtag Shed Rally, um, you get entered to win a bunch of prizes from Whitetail Properties. And now, this year, now I'm going to do a giveaway with Wired Hunt. So if you participate in Shed Rally and you post your pictures with that Shed Rally hashtag, if you're wearing a Wired Hunt hat or shirt and you're out there and you put pictures and videos, You'll also be entered into another giveaway, and we're going to give away five prizes. One person is going to win a Yeti Tundra cooler, and it's the, the Tundra Hall. So it's their new cooler. It's got wheels on it. You can pull around. Another one of you is going to win a Yeti loadout bucket, one of their big fancy buckets, fully loaded with all the different accessories and stuff, lids and tool straps and seats and interesting things like that. Uh, another person is going to win a Yeti 36-ounce Rambler bottle. Another winner is going to win a first light catalyst jacket and pant, which is the the set of white Del gear I wore a lot during this past hunting season. And then finally, someone's going to win a Vortex Impact rangefinder. So pretty sweet, right? Pretty pretty sweet set of prizes. And all you got to do is wear your Wired Hunt gear during Shed Rally. Uh, and if I so what I'm going to do is after shed rally i'm gonna go click on the shed rally hashtag and actually add put the wired hunt hashtag in there too so wear your wired hunt gear 
put a wire hunt hashtag in there too. That'll make it a little bit easier for me to sort through. Um, but basically I'll just hit the hashtag in my Instagram feed and I'll just scroll through it, find all the people that wore their wire hunt gear. We'll put everyone's names in the hat and we're just going to randomly select five people and, uh, you'll get a sweet prize for, for rock and wire hunt gear during shed relics. So, um, all right. I thought that'd be fun. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. I'm down. Do I, do I qualify or not? Yeah, sure. You can, you can Ooh. qualify, Dan. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I'm just going to take like 50 pictures of the same exact shed. I'm going to be watching out for that. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's exciting shed rally news. We talked about CWD issues. Um, Main topic today, Dan, uh, once you've got a balance, is going to be Western whitetail stuff. Um, now, I know you get the Western elk stuff. You're intrigued by Western mule deer. Have any of my stories about my whitetail trips out there intrigued yet? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've already looked at Wyoming and Montana whitetail hunts. Yeah. It's uh, – I mean, you 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 love the, the sand hills when you chase muleys out there. Yeah. And, I, and I've I'm, chased whitetails out there too. I guess you did see a couple big ones, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's it's um, I'm having a hard time not going out there every year and doing it, which makes it tough because I love Elcon. Um, but I am just, as we were talking about a few weeks ago, I for some reason I'm just getting more and more infatuated with my original infatuation, and I'm having a hard time saying that I won't do a whitetail hunt in September or West to do an Elcon instead. I, I'm having a hard time doing both. Yeah. Just you know, being away for two weeks at a time. Um, so this year I don't think I'm going to do an elk hunt just because I really want to do my whitetail hunt. It's just, I don't know. I don't know why, but you just see so many deer. They act, you know, they're just very visible. It's cool, really cool age class. You're seeing older deer and in, in the big country, the big skies. Um, I don't know. It's been, it's been a fun thing for me and you definitely have caught the Western bug in general. Just yeah, the, the Western hunt, just how different that is. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's something that I think about every day. Yeah. So have you made any more progress in your Western plans since we talked like three weeks ago about this topic? Yeah. I mean, not too much, not too much plan on the, on the elk side of thing, because really all I have to do is just organize my gear, you know, practice shooting, get conditioning, uh, and pay the tag, right? The place is already there. I already know where I'm, where I would go again. The mule deer side of things in South Dakota I've talked with a lot of people since the last time we talked. And when I say a lot, I mean like five or six different people. And they were gracious enough to talk to me about how they work it, some little tips and tricks that they use, uh, um, how to locate them, how to, you know, set up on uh, stocks and and all that good stuff. And even, you know, not necessarily like hacking into the Onyx system to find specific pinpoints, (laughs) but they're just like, hey, man, check out this area. Hey, so why are you thinking about? doing south dakota instead of going back to your nebraska spot that you had so population strictly population um i think i'd have more deer population yeah mule deer population i think i will have a better chance of getting a stock in um in south dakota on public land than i will on this farm in uh in nebraska interesting um I'm very interested to see how that goes. Like it's yeah. it's a hunt that's that's always been on my radar, and I, again, it's a time thing. Like, what yeah. do you you got you got to pick and choose, and I'm gonna have to pick that eventually and try it out. So I'm gonna be watching your experience closely. Yeah. What are you gonna do as far as um, 
have you have you thought through like logistics? Are you in a camp? Are you gonna get a hotel? Are you gonna rent a cabin? Uh, yeah, if I do it, do I'm doing I'm doing it as gangster as possible, and I'm gonna be sleeping in the back of my truck. I, I have a topper, so that yeah, makes buddy. it that makes it easy. Um, you know, eat everything out of the back of my truck. Have a cooler with me. Um, you know, all that all that stuff. There's some BLM land around there, so I can definitely uh, sleep on the BLM land. Uh, there's also like I think there's some campsites around there as well. Um, I don't want to do a hotel if unless I ha- like for some reason have to, but uh, I want to do it. I want to do it, uh, you know, as hard as possible. Yeah, man, that's the way to do it. Highly, I mean, you you've seen my uh, back truck hunts over these last couple of years, and yep. something about it, I just I love coming back to the truck after full day hunting. And for me, I don't know if you're doing this with anyone else, but I also I kind of like these solo hunts when you just get back. It's dark, it's pitch black, you you drink a cold beer at the tailgate at the end of the night by headlamp, you kick back in your sleeping bag, uh, you know, there's nothing but coyotes howling in the distance. There's something cool about just being out there on your own that's 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 nice and that you just don't get when you're in a hotel. Um, so camping, I think, is a good choice. In our um, in conversation that we're about to have here with Zach and and Eric, which I recorded for this, um, we actually get into some some thoughts on setting up Western camps too. They've yeah. got a lot of experience setting up like um, wall tents for bigger, longer trips, which is an interesting thing too, which is something I haven't done. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's an interesting thing to, to keep in mind as well. If you do a, a group with a bunch of people, setting up a big tent is not a bad idea. Me and me and Andy May, when we did our Nebraska hunt, we brought a big like four person tent. It wasn't yeah. quite a wall tent, but it was big enough that we could bring our grill inside a little like uh, what do you call it? Not an awning, but um, eh, I'm blanking on this word. But basically, like a little outdoor covered yeah. area that we had the grill, and then inside the tent we set up two camp chairs and a table and the cooler so that we could eat inside because it was really cold at night. So we could still eat inside the tent, and we had the other half of the tent with our sleeping bags and our gear. And that was that was pretty nice too. Um, I'm a big fan of the the hunting camping trips for whitetails. Yeah. It's it's not only it's very common, but it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. So I've even thought about depend not maybe not every day. It's because I I live so close to where I hunt in Iowa. But I even thought about maybe an early season. You know, first week of October, if I'm going out there to kill a doe, park the truck next to a barn at the, at the farm and you know, just chill there overnight and, you know, just hunt out of the back of the truck just one night. And, uh, I think, I still think that would be pretty fun. I think you're right for sure. Um, maybe we'll come together someday. Do that. Hey, Hey man, I'm all for (laughs) it. I'm all for it. Well, uh, we'll wait. We'll talk about that later. Hopefully something happens soon. Um, you know, I totally forgot to mention something unrelated to going west but related to our last topic can i like hit the um you know when someone's working the turntables of the dj booth and they can yeah but then when they want to go backwards in time they can go yeah yeah well i'm gonna hit the turntables right i'm gonna rewind the tape (laughs) and we're going back to shed hunting because i totally forgot to tell you that i have found my first sheds of the year yeah i saw that dude and I, this is like it's not it's not anywhere close to a Shirley at all. Don't say it's, Holyfield. No, 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 no okay. Holyfield. Okay. <laughs> Although that's interesting. Someone 
this time we're going off the rails real fast here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we did this live mediator podcast last weekend and, um, really cool event. It was like 1600 people came out to see the podcast and, um, I get out of my truck after the show and I walk up and I see someone, there's a ticket on the windshield. I'm like, son of a gun. I got a ticket. I parked in the wrong place. And I walk up to it, and it's, it's not like an official ticket. It's actually like theater tickets. And across the back of the theater, theater tickets, it says, Holyfield lives. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, man, that's kind of creepy that someone knew this is my vehicle. <laughs> but kind of funny, too. <laughs> oh, buddy. Um, so that's that's all I've got in Holyfield. But, um, but I Western am – Western shed hunting. Nope, not nope. Western shed hunting. Shed hunting. Shed hunting. In Michigan, in slash Ohio. Okay, that's right. Yep, yep. Slash, I am tentatively exploring, and this is definitely not a sure thing, but I'm kind of exploring some different possible options to maybe try and purchase a small hunting property. Uh-oh. In Michigan? Possibly in Michigan. Possibly in northern Ohio or northern Indiana. Because I'm kind of, kind of close to the border, like the, where they all come together. Yeah. Um, and try, I mean, like real small. But I've had, you know, we've kind of talked for long periods of time about how I'd love to do it someday, right? We've had this conversation over the years. Like, would yep. love to do it. Would love to do it. Would love to buy something small. Um, so I'm kind of looking at some different routes of maybe being able to do that, mostly because I think it would just be like a really cool, like, project like a content thing to talk right. about on the podcast and to to share across all the different things i'm doing like how do like we, we hear about we talk about people buying a property and, and making something cool that we had dan prez on several years ago you and me dan talking to him and he was talking about how you, know, you gotta start small buy a small property yep. build something cool flip it and then buy a little bigger one and then you can do that over the years and, and finally get to something that is what you really want so I'm wondering maybe I should try to test the theory. Um, and again, this is not a sure thing at all. This is something I'm, I'm just kind of fiddling with at the moment. Um, but I did find a small property that was very intriguing, and I walked it the other day and found three sheds on it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Let me guess. One of them's a Boone and Crockett from a Boone and Crockett. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. That's just your luck. Yeah. My, my luck's been pretty good lately. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like uh, a spike. A uh, two-pointer and a shed from last year, at least a year old, that would have been a four-point side. But like a, a nice four-pointer, like a hundred, like a hundred and hundred and ten inch eight-pointer, maybe something like that. Yeah. Um, but encouraging, you know, walking a property, just trying to see what we think about it, um, and finding some antlers just as you're checking it out. Um, that was cool, and the property is very interesting. I. I I'll I'll wait to talk about this property too much until we get, you know, if it becomes a real thing. But um, but yeah, a whole bunch of possible things to talk about if if this whole idea comes together. So uh, TBD and all that, Dan. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so that I think is is all I want to talk about today. We talked about sheds. We talked about CWD. Talked about how we would love going out west and how it's something you should think about. How the rest of our conversation with Zach and Eric will be pretty interesting because they've got a lot of unique experience. Um, anything else you want to cover, Dan? No, I'm good. I, I I just got the text from the wife that says, "Wrap it up." <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, we'll wrap it up. Um, I do want to make one quick announcement, which yep. is is not as much is not a fun thing to talk about at all. Um, but I just want to. Um, 
you know, just say a few words about the, the, the tragedy that we had in the whitetail community here recently. Someone that you and I both knew well, um, Todd Pringnitz, uh, the owner of White, White Knuckle Productions, and he did Wicked Street Gear, a tree thrasher, um, passed away um, recently from uh, an ATV accident. And you and I, actually, Dan, we both met at the White Knuckle Film Productions uh, film school many years ago. Um, so that is, you know, that's where this whole thing kind of started. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were really positively um, influenced by Todd. He, he brought a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to everything he did in the whitetail world. And I think um, just a very, 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 very sad thing. Um, and he left behind a wife and a two-month-old um, son. So I just wanted to mention this fact that um, there is a GoFundMe right now that is helping raise funds to help cover the medical costs that were incurred over the last week or so, um, you know, while Todd was, was fighting this. And um, I think if anyone has a little extra forgive to help out Katie and uh, their son Baker, um, that would be a great way to try to do that. Um, and you can... I will have a link to this on the show notes uh, for this podcast. So you can go contribute to that GoFundMe there. Or if you go to the White Knuckle Film Productions um, Facebook page, well, I'm sure they'll have a link there. Or you could go to GoFundMe and, and search for Todd Pringnitz there as well. Um, and you'll be able to find a way to help there. Uh, so just wanted to um, give our condolences as, as the Wired Hunt community to the Pringnitz family. And, um, you know, if anyone can give, that's one way to do it. Otherwise, let's keep um, everyone affected by this in our prayers. And um, with that, um, we what. will. I tell you what. Let me tell a real quick story. Okay. Okay. So I was living in Alabama. I got a phone call from my buddy Brent Rich, and I was out of Alabama. Like I was checked out. I was ready to move back to Iowa. He's like, "Hey, man, uh, you doing any hunting down there?" I'm like, "No, man. All I do is work all the time. All I do is work." He's like, "Man, I met this dude. Uh, I'm going. I go shed hunting with him." whatever you know we're starting to hang out he's like this hardcore whitetail nut right and i'm like oh cool because i'm i had started to miss hunting when i was working all that all those hours down in alabama i i moved back to iowa and you know i'm i have a girl i have a girlfriend at the time i have uh i have uh, uh a house that i just purchased and uh i get a call from my buddy one night he's like hey this dude todd is at the bar with me. It's a bar named Key. It's a this bar we always used to hang out at called Kios. He's like, uh, why don't you uh, why don't you come meet us out for a couple beers? And I'm like, yeah, okay, man, I'll do that. And uh, so the first night I ever met Todd was at this bar with my buddy Brent, and uh, Todd introduces himself and he goes, uh, "What's your name?" I said, "I'm Dan," and he goes, "Dallas," and there was no <laughs> there was no music playing. <laughs> in this bar so i i didn't know how he didn't understand me i go <laughs> i go no dan dan johnson and he goes dallas dallas fort worth <laughs> and i'm not shitting you the very first night that i met him is the night i got the name dallas fort worth and people <laughs> to this day still call me by that that's amazing I guess I didn't realize it came from that first night. <laughs> very, amazing. very first night I ever met him. Wow, that's that's the story, man. And uh, and I, yeah, man, it's. Uh, I think a lot of people 
can can point to Todd or things that he put on that, that helped bring a lot of us together and, and brought a lot of joy to the the hunting community. Um, yeah, like the first time I ever heard about you was was on one of the white knuckle production DVDs, one of those that you were on with Todd. And I remember thinking that's a wild character. He's an interesting <laughs> dude. <laughs> and then when we met, you know, we kicked off our own friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, so just uh, just. Uh, shockingly sad and I think I think a lot of people are, are, are um, probably the, uh, I don't even know what to say um, there's nothing just, there's nothing to really say I mean nothing go go if you feel if you feel like it go give some money to the family through through that uh, um, uh, GoFundMe app and uh, help take care of a two-month-old man yeah, and I think uh, kiss your wife, husband, or, or child goodnight, and just appreciate every single day because uh, nothing is guaranteed. And um, just be thankful for what we have. So with that, uh, let's wrap up this uh, part one. Thank you, Dan, for uh, for making some time for this. And um, let's take a quick break, and then we'll move on to part two with Eric and Zach. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. All right, I'm here now with Eric Siegfried and Zach Sandow of Onyx. And uh, first off, guys, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Absolutely, thank you. It's, uh, it's always fun to talk to people. At least, at least I get a kick out of talking to people that 
come from a different kind of background or different perspective on things. You know, we're eventually going to talk about whitetails here, but your guys' whitetail experiences, I'm imagining, I think, from what I gather, are pretty different from mine. And those are usually the conversations that um, that are most fascinating to me, probably. I, I'm i kind of a sucker for the new and the different. So uh, right out the gate, I'm excited about that, especially since you guys are hunting out west, which is where, where my heart usually lies. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying I'm excited about this. But before we get into that stuff, I do want to kind of lay some background here. Um, and Eric, you founded Onyx, which is a tool I've been using for many years now. It's unbelievably helpful. Um, so I, f- I figure I should probably kick this off by saying thank you. Thank you for helping me out in a lot of ways. And um, secondly, how, how did this all come together? I, I got to hear the story of, of how this product came to be, how it ended up on my phone and, and opened so often to the dismay of my wife. And um, maybe a little bit of background on, on you personally as a hunter and stuff would be interesting too. Okay, yeah. So uh, I guess I can give a little background company history um so i started the company in 2009 that's when we launched our first products for the garmin gps unit it was a micro sd card that had statewide land ownership map and topo map that you just plug right into your garmin gps unit and you could see those property boundaries where you were while you're in the field so that was the original product we sold that for we still sell that product um and we sold that a lot for the first three years. Then in 2013, we came out with the app that basically turned your smartphone into a GPS. So that was 2013. And since then, most people are probably more familiar these days with our smartphone app called Onyx Hunt, um, downloaded in the app store. But yeah, that's kind of the overall picture of the company really quickly. Um, I actually, a little bit of history about me. I I grew up in eastern Montana, um, mainly hunting elk, well, mainly hunting mule deer and antelope when I started. Then I started moving west. I went to school in Bozeman and started doing some archery elk hunting. Um, and my, my family actually owned a ranch, a ranch on the river bottom. So I did a little bit of whitetail hunting. Uh, my dad got me my first bow when I was 16, and I did a little bit of uh, whitetail hunting with that right away. But have done some rifle hunting for whitetails. Uh, but other than that, now now living in western Montana in Missoula where the company is, I do some mountain whitetail hunting. Yeah. But other than that, yeah. I've been hearing a lot of good things about that section of the state. I've, I've always hunted on the east side of the state, but uh, I'm increasingly intrigued by what's going up there a little bit more to the west and north. So I'm going to have to have to pick your brain a little bit about that. But, um, but going back to the, to yeah. the company a little bit, I mean, where did the idea come from? Was this something that you always wanted to just get better maps available on your GPS? Or was this, I'm just kind of curious about how, you know, how this went from some concept that you had or someone had to being a reality. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a interesting story. Basically, moving to Bozeman, Montana for going, going to school, um, I... Uh, had a experience i had to try to find places where i could go elk hunting and i did that with forest service maps blm maps whatever then i had to move to missoula and basically land in a whole new area where i had to figure out where i could go so i was using forest service maps using blm maps and i was like gosh this is hard i 
hard to actually figure out exactly where you're at relative to property boundaries in the field. So that was about 2007 when I was having those experiences. And just by doing that, having that personal need, I ended up uh, coming up with the idea, like, just basically, I need this in the field with me. So how can I have this on my GPS when I'm in the field? I was using a topo map on my Garmin GPS. It didn't have the public and private land ownership. So came up with the idea, hey, I need this public land when I'm in the field. How can I get this on my Garmin GPS unit? And I figured it out. And that's how kind of the product came about, with just those personal experiences I had. Wow. Needing to find property boundary. Yeah. Hey. I think you're probably making it sound easier than it was. I'm sure being a small-time <laughs> entrepreneur myself at times, I know that uh, putting something out there for the world is no easy task. So uh, I'm glad that, it's, that it was uh, something you could do because we're certainly reaping, we're reaping the benefits of it now. Um, and, Zach, I guess you're kind of reaping the benefits of it too, working for Onyx. Um, can you give us a little lowdown on, on what it is you're doing there and, and a little bit of your story too? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. I work on the marketing team, and so I kind of oversee the projects that we're working on and just the different communications and then get to work with the partners as well. So pretty much the team gets to make me look good and make my job easy. But it uh, I've been here for a little over three years now, and I actually graduated college. I'd use the chip, um, especially, you know, Eric growing up in Montana. It was one of those things, wanted to support Montana, and it did. I mean, it it solved the problem. We, uh, my parents are from Eastern Montana, so we do a lot of hunting out there where you're navigating boundaries and, you know, you always hear the term checkerboard. And so before we were always uncertain where we were. And then once we got the chip, it changed all that. And so I knew in college, I wanted to do something in the hunting industry. And OnX was always one that was on my radar because they were located right in my backyard. I graduated from the University of Montana here in Missoula and they actually had an internship um that i started the day after i graduated and then that was over three years ago and they haven't been able to get rid of me since (laughs) (laughs) nice it sounds like not a bad not a bad thing to be to be doing it looks like you're some somehow you figured out a job that allows you to do a lot of fun stuff too because I, i saw you were on that um that mule deer hunt with steve in the whole anyone's hunt episodes right that was was that new mexico yep or arizona that was Arizona. So that one was Arizona in December. And yeah, that was a good time. We, uh, you know, just over the counter archery opportunity that I had never done. I've wanted to hunt Arizona and we just went down and stayed out, slept under the stars for nine days and went and hunted mule deer with our bow. And we weren't successful, but we had plenty of opportunities. I ended up coming to full draw on a buck at 46 yards and got busted just trying to step out behind a shrub. But it was a good time, you know, it, the first couple of days, we were really just trying to get a lay of the land, kind of learn, you know, these deer movement, but last couple of days, we kind of got it dialed and ended up finding some bucks and had a ton of stocks that we got close, but just not quite enough to capitalize. Yeah, that's hunting. I, uh, I haven't got to watch all the, the full videos yet, but I've really been enjoying, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff on Instagram stories and, uh, and, and following along with what you guys are doing here recently, so... I mean, it's funny though. Look, as as I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, man, I I gotta get out there and chase some some mule deer. I just went on my first coos deer hunt a couple weeks ago and, and got kind of the taste for that mountain hunting for deer. Um, and so Montana's a spot I go to a lot. I'd love to do a mule deer hunt there, but I don't think I ever could convince myself to do it 
because you can only get one deer tag in Montana, either mule deer or whitetail deer. And I don't think I can possibly say no to the whitetail hunting out there. Because, <laughs> um, man, I've gotten so, so much enjoyment out of chasing these western whitetails. But I'm doing it from a non-resident perspective, you know. So I'm from Michigan. I'm used to how we have it here. And going out to Montana, it's just so different as far as the landscape, as far as the number of deer you see, the number of bucks, the number of quality bucks. It's kind of like a whitetail dreamland for me out there. Um but I always hear from locals that just, I don't know, I don't know if people appreciate it as much as I do. I'm kind of curious what you guys like think or feel about the whitetail situation out there. Like, how do you look at and think about Western whitetails? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's tough just growing up is Montana has so much opportunity. You know, our tag, if you buy a deer tag, a large portion of the state is a general unit. And there's a couple areas that'll be a permit for mule deer, but for the most part, you can shoot either in a ton of different districts and you can hunt them from September during archery season all the way about till, you know, early October. And then you can do the rifle season from October 22nd ish through the end of November through Thanksgiving weekend. So you have one tag, you get so much opportunity. And what's kind of cool with the landscape in Montana is you can be hunting mountains that can hold whitetail and mule deer. Or you can be, you know, in eastern Montana in these badlands and river bottoms that hold them both. So it's such an opportunity thing. And I think there are folks that lean one way or another. But for me personally, it's one of those things that there are some similarities between how we're hunting them, especially during rifle season. And, you know, just being able to, you know, shoot either if, if you see it. You know, you could go out there intending to have a spot stock mule deer hunt, but then all of a sudden in some ag land or river bottom you see a nice whitetail and all of a sudden the hunt changes quickly yeah i bet that that does make it pretty exciting knowing that the option's there if you had to guess zach or or eric what do you think the split is like if you had to just based off kind of your your friends and people you're around <laughs> if they're gonna say like whitetail guys versus mule deer guys if they had to pick what do you think it is is it like 75 70 percent mule deer people 30 percent whitetail or what's that skew around you guys of all Montanans, you're thinking? Yeah, rough guess. Of all Montanans. That's tough. <laughs> I, I would say, I would say probably more whitetails are harvested just because there tend to be more whitetails in the western United States, or sorry, excuse me, the western Montana, and there's that's where you kind of run into some permanent areas for mule deer. But I think people kind of want to hunt mule deer, so I'd say they they would say mule deer, but I know like around Missoula, for instance, we have not a lot of general over-the-counter opportunities for mule deer, so there's quite a few more whitetails being shot here and up in northwest Montana, but if you go to eastern Montana, there's definitely plenty of whitetails out there, but it seems like folks are focusing on mule deer. Yeah, yeah I guess in the circles I hang out with, it'd be, I figure, 80% mule deer, 20% whitetail, yeah. but maybe if you look across the whole state, it might be more like 65, 35 or something. Yeah. 65% mule deer, 35 whitetail. I don't know. Yeah, Definitely you, majority mule deer. Yeah. Now, would you say, though, the, if you looked at the population of deer, it might be more, more a little bit the opposite direction? Is it safe to say there's probably a lot more white-tailed deer than mule deer in the state? Is that accurate? That one's, that one's tough, putting us on spot on that one. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I have no I idea. Don't know. I don't know on that one. I think, uh, I think there's plenty of opportunity for both, but I think depending on where you're at in the region of the state, you can see more, you know, whitetails in West, 
western Montana, and then mule deer when you get to the east. There, there's a ton of mule deer, and frankly, I mean, there's a ton of whitetails when you get around River Bottom and Eggland. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Actually, interesting dynamic is in Montana, you've got egg 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 bottoms and river bottoms and creek bottoms in eastern Montana and other places where you got whitetails hanging out. But then you get into western Montana in the mountains and you've got actually whitetails that have been moving up into the mountains. So you actually have this whitetail mountain hunting and then you also have the typical like river bottom whitetail hunting going on in eastern Montana and other places in western Montana. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's got me really intrigued too. I've been talking about it for a while, wanting to try to chase some of these these deer up in the mountains because I've done the river bottom thing. But um, yeah. but it definitely does seem like to your guys' point, the interest skews probably towards mule deer, not just in Montana, but probably a lot of these western states. Um, but I know some guys are a little like worried about the spread of whitetails. Like whitetails are just so adaptable; they seem to be increasing their populations in a lot of areas. I know like if you look at the longer view over the last couple of decades, it sounds like it's definitely been something that's been growing as far as the whitetail prevalence versus mule deer prevalence in certain places. And in some places, even maybe whitetails pushing muleys off a little bit. Um, so I've got a couple of buddies who are always kind of dogging me about liking the whitetail so much. Like, yeah, keep them, keep them by you. We don't want them. <laughs> um, yeah. But I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for these deer. Um, I've only ever been out there, though, hunting um, early season. So I've always done the early September archery deal for whitetails out there. Um, does that seem to be, at least from my perspective, it seems like there's not a whole lot of attention being paid to them at that point. From all the places I've hunted, I've, I've ran into very few people chasing whitetails at that time of year. When does the whitetail bug hit most people around you guys? Is that more of a later in the year kind of thing, a gun thing, or am I just kind of experiencing a unique situation? No, I definitely agree. I think it's more, you know, Montana, we get the opportunity to hunt deer during the rut. So I would say that's when whitetail hunting picks up. Um, there's always folks that will go out and hunt early season in archery. And then in rifle, you know, they'll they'll be out more spot and stock once that October 22nd rolls around. But for the most part, you know, when you have the opportunity to hunt them in the rut, it seems like that's when most people are getting the whitetail bug. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing I've kind of missed out on. I love like that early September time period because it's it's some I can't hunt at that time of year back home, and love getting to see that bed to feed pattern so much just visible activity. But I have always been really just wondering like what the rut is like in these western states. Is it? Is it pretty wild? Is, is whitetail riding action pretty awesome up, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I last year hunted western and eastern Montana, and being able to see how the similarities, but also just the differences between them, we have an opportunity for like a, uh, it's a river bottom art, it's an extra buck tag, but you have to shoot it with a bow, and it's in the river bottom, and so like that one, I don't even really, you can hunt that from archery season, so September 1st, all the way through January, and I don't really focus on that one until that kind of mid-November because I'm looking for them to rut, looking for bucks to be moving. Um, and then, you know, when I'm hunting eastern Montana with a rifle, that's generally, you know, spot and stock. You're trying to find deer. And so locate does. And, you know, it's cool because during the rut you have bucks cruising. So you can look at a group of does one day and then the next day all of a sudden there's a buck there that hasn't been. And so it is one of those things that, once the rut starts coming, it's great because you just have so many opportunities to find bucks. 
Yeah. So one of the things I've always noticed when going out there that's unique compared to some of the other states I've hunted is just the the very, very high number of bucks compared to does. Like you go out on an average hunt for me back here in Michigan and you might see 15 does and one buck. But I've never been out to any of my hunts in western states for whitetails and seen, you know, it's almost always even. If I had to average it out, like I might see 10 bucks, 10 does or five bucks, five does. Like it seems, at least from my experience, I'm seeing that often. Is that, is that something you guys see often too? And then if so, I've always imagined that makes for like a lot of intense competition, a lot of fighting, a lot of chasing during the rut because of that. Do you see that? Yeah. I mean, I think definitely, you know, the buck to doe ratio is pretty good, especially for whitetails. Um, you know, as you were saying earlier, it seems like whitetails are a little more resilient than mule deer. But I do think, you know, there's, there's, especially once rifle season comes, you always hear about like the orange army. Um, there is a lot of competition for these deer, but luckily the whitetail population in Montana is doing pretty well across the state. Um, so you do have, you know, you do have a pretty good buck to doe ratio. It can vary, but I mean, I, the whitetail I shot this year during rifle season, I think that day I saw six bucks and we ended up seeing like maybe 10 to 12 does. So it was two to one doe, but still very good, you know, um, especially when you're going out looking to be able to look through six bucks in a morning is not bad. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't noticed any one-to-one ratios. It's more like four does to one buck. What I usually see if I had to guess. Yeah. So what about fighting and stuff? Is there a lot of duking it out given that just in general, there's a pretty good number of bucks. And and, the, and again, I've don't know if this is unique, but I've even hunting public land, a pretty good spread of age class too. I mean, it's not like it's all year and a half old forkies. Like I see in Michigan. Sometimes I've seen, you know, a couple year and a half olds, a couple two and a half year olds, a couple threes, fours, you know, there, there's older deer. Um, is there some serious, competition for those ladies have you seen any knockdown brawls yeah i mean i've i've only had the benefit or the opportunity to see whitetail bucks fighting once but the one thing i do know is during the rut especially like this river bottom tag i was talking about earlier really what i like to do is i like to set up a decoy and rattle and i've had pretty good success doing that uh, generally you'll get those younger bucks coming in there but even this year during rifle season, we were up in the hills and we found a good drainage that was off of private land on public. So I was kind of hunting that boundary there and finding, you know, where these bucks would be moving up into the hills. And I was able to rattle in that drainage and we had different bucks coming to check us out, come, you know, to see what's going on. And so if you have 10 does running around there, six bucks, and they're all kind of curious and moving throughout, we ended up rattling one in pretty close. That was a young buck. Um, but I do think, you know, that is one thing that it seems like during the rut, especially when you get to that, like, mid-November, um, there is a ton of opportunity to rattle deer in. They seem to be pretty aggressive at that point and always want to at least come check it out. Yeah. Yeah, I've wondered about that, too. What what was the kind of rattling sequence or strategy that you're using? How, like, were you doing it just once a day or every half hour or i'd love some details on what you found to work out there yeah for sure so archery when i'm doing kind of the river bottom thing generally it's like state section so they're pretty small um and i know these deer are kind of in the egg fields on the private or they're going and bedding up over there where there's less pressure so 
generally what I'm doing is I'm actually on the ground. I enjoy doing it there just because I can be a little more mobile. And so I'll set up and rattle the perimeters of those. And I'll generally set up for, you know, do a couple sequences um, within a half hour and then sit and wait for a little while, see what's going on. And then if nothing's going for 45 minutes or so, I'll pick up and move and I'll kind of just work the whole perimeter. Um, and, you know, there's some areas that I know deer tend to bed. And so I'm kind of trying to figure out where those does are, where I think bucks will be in the general vicinity. But then with rifle, honestly, moving country, um, you know, looking for does. Cause if you, you know, during the rut, if you find the does, you can assume there's a buck nearby, but then also just moving country and glassing, trying to find deer and then finding places that you think they're going to be bedded up in and then setting up and calling. But I would say when I'm rifle hunting, if I'm going to rattle, I'm, I'm much more mobile, less calling there and covering country. Yeah, man, that sounds like a fun way to do it. Um, when you're doing it with the bow in those river bottoms, when you're setting up on the ground, so you, you describe that setup. I'm curious, like how you're positioning yourself to have some cover or not. But I mean, walk me through like an example of how you'd set up on the bow for a rattle in kind of sequence. That sounds intense. I'm thinking in my head, rattling a buck while on the ground with my bow and hoping to get a shot. I, uh, I'm very intrigued. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I want to preface with this is I haven't, you know, these are generally since it's a second buck tag, I'm not, I haven't, killed a stud doing this but i've gotten some younger and nice bucks coming in but usually i have a couple areas picked out that you know i've hunted these areas for a couple years that i know where these deer are going to be bedded and so i'll try to find like a, a predominant deer trail that i know there's some movement on and i'll go and set up and i'll put that decoy out anywhere from 25 to 40 yards depending on what the cover's like and so i'll generally have them so they're facing kind of quartering to me and so then when I back up, get a good backdrop, I just bring like a little chair, a little portable chair that I can set up and make sure I'm drawn and I'm tucked in. I don't have anything, you know, really covering me so much in front, but I'm just making sure I have a good backdrop and I'm tucked back. And then so theoretically, and what's happened in the past is I will get their attention and they come looking and then in the clearing where they have some vision, they're able to see that decoy and what I found is when I have them kind of quarter and two, when they come to, you know, confront them and come up, I will have a good, generally I'm trying to get like a, obviously a broadside or even quartering away shot in that 25 to 30 yard range. And so I try to get set up. So I have good backdrop, make sure the wind's in my face before I set up. And then, you know, if I think they're going to be rattling where they're coming from, I'll set up according to the wind and then try to find a trail that I think they'll come into and, come in to see that decoy and not have any attention on me yeah i really like that that's that's uh that sounds like a good way to do it you mentioned the wind a couple times playing the wind and everything and that's something that i've always found when i compare like what we're doing with my typical whitetail guy back in the midwest or the east or wherever compared to folks i've hunted with out west is lots of times we like obsess about scent control like really go over the top with trying to minimize any human odor while on the other flip side, I feel like a lot of folks out west are, don't even care about it at all. They're just going to play the wind. They don't worry about trying to minimize scent. They'll wear their camo clothes all day, every day, doing whatever. Is that – how do you how do you fall on that? Do you try to do any kind of scent control when specifically chasing whitetails in a scenario like that or or no? 
I'll clean, you know, I'll make sure to wash them with stuff and not add any additional scent, and I'll leave them to air out outside. But it is, I would agree 100% that I think in the West, we try to play the wind. We don't worry about scent control stuff as much. I do know, like, with archery, like, I try to make sure my stuff's hung out. I'm, you know, putting it on when I get to the parking spot. But really, I'm playing the wind on that one and worrying about that more so than any scent control on my clothing or myself. Yeah. But most guys are, I mean, during November in the rut, most guys are out there with their rifles. So yeah. You can, you're out there doing a rattle and you're setting up maybe in a little elevated spot with more visibility to where you can shoot 100 yards. Yeah. So you know you can play your wind when you're rattling and then make sure your wind's going to a safe spot. Yeah. And then you're using a rifle, so you don't have to worry about such close quarters. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, so Eric, Eric, can you describe in, in a little more detail your your kind of typical setups on a lot of these hunts? Because I know you said you're more rifle-focused during the rut, too. Is it kind of similar to some of the things that, uh, that Zach was sharing, or do you have a different take? Yeah, um, I guess... I, I have tried a little bit of rattling, but not a lot. What I've done in the past in eastern Montana is I've actually, like, gone to an elevated position and just watched where bucks are coming out in the field from, I'm talking, like, two miles away. You're on this, like, elevated hill where you can look at down all the down around all the river bottoms and egg fields. So I'll glass evenings and mornings and see where bucks are going into bed and coming out to fields. And then if I see a buck that... Um, interested in I'll actually use terrain to stock down close with a rifle and maybe I'm 200 yards away but I can usually use some sort of terrain to actually stock in on them and get a shot yeah. or you can go that you know if you see one come out of to a field at night maybe you just go back in the morning and try to get in a position where you're 200 yards from that field or do the same thing the next evening where you actually get close the next evening to where this buck's coming out yeah yeah I think that's one of my favorite things about western whitetail hunting so far has just been the opportunity to do what you just said which is observe deer from a distance and then be able to move on them so often like what i've got going on back here in some of the states i hunt in the midwest you you know you're at if you want to see at least mature bucks you're not very often going to see them out in the open where you could actually see them from you know half a mile or 200 yards even lots of times if you're going to see something it's got to be at 50 yards or 40 yards or those long distance observations are just tough so so much of your strategy has to come down to looking at sign or trail cameras or close encounter and and then making a small adjustment but when i've gone you know north dakota or montana i'm sitting you know just like you described i'll find a high spot and i'll just watch a mile away and then you can learn so much not only is that helpful from a hunting perspective but that's just for me at least it's a lot of fun just to get to see the deer and then you know make a move with it with your tree stand or if you've got a gun you know sneak in on foot um that is just just the observation just simply geeking out about watching deer that is just i don't know unique to the western landscape it seems like you just the views are unbelievable yeah absolutely and it always makes it easier you know like even if the hunting's not great where you're at, if you're able to go out and see deer to neighboring public ground that they might get an opportunity, or you might get an opportunity on, it just keeps you motivated throughout the day when you can just go up and get up high and start glassing to see deer. Cause you always have that, you know, you're always waiting for that opportunity and it, it just helps you get through those longer days. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. Anymore. I like to just use my spotting scope and, uh, 
you know, take pictures of certain deer and kind of watch them over the years and just like photograph them and watch what they do. And one of the spots that I have, you can actually just sit on this high rise and you can see multiple different fields. So you, you look at this one field for a little bit, see what they're doing. Then you look over here, see what they're doing. So, so like you're saying, it's really neat to watch. Yeah. Watch what they all do. Is that something that people do a whole lot around you guys? That being, you know, actually paying attention to specific deer and seeing that same deer year after year. I've always kind of, I haven't heard that as mm. much from the West, but back here all the time, like we're seeing the same eight pointer year after year, things yeah. like that. Um, does that happen a whole bunch in your kind of neck of the woods? Yeah. I think if they have access to some private ground, maybe the one thing I do here is like someone might see a deer during archery season and then try to come back during rifle and locate that deer. Right. If it's like a general area or something like that. But I do think the folks that are watching year to year, um, it's just on public ground. It's tough that, you know, they might get pushed off or someone else might get in there, but you know, there's a ton of folks who have a place that they've been hunting every single year. And so then they're able to kind of keep tabs on their deer. Yeah. What, what kind of opportunity have you guys seen from a public land perspective? Um, generally pretty good quality hunting in the areas you guys have gone as far as whitetails or, um, you know, I thought it's been pretty darn good in the places I've gone, but again, I'm comparing it to, you know, Michigan where the, the public land hunting is really, really tough. Um, have you guys seen pretty, pretty good success on public land at all or heard about it as far as whitetails? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a ton of opportunity and it kind of, you know, it depends on what type of hunt you want. So I know like, you know, like the Milk River is, everyone knows about the Milk River and it's great. And they've had some issues with blue tongue and whatnot the last couple of years, but it sounds like they're rebounding. But like, I know for a fact up Northwest Montana, there's some really big bucks, but it's difficult hunting. Um, but a lot of that is public ground, you know, and it's tough. It's thick country and you're kind of still hunting and walking through, but in eastern Montana, we got a ton of great opportunity where you'll have, you know, in this checkerboard, you'll have egg land or something coming off a river bottom, and you might have a couple sections of state. So these deer might predominantly be on private where they're left alone, but every once in a while, especially like during the rut, you can catch deer coming out onto public ground that you can go access. And so I think there's a ton of opportunity. Another great one we have is we have block management, which is private ground for public access for hunting and so this will be something where it you know it's more agriculture some of it might be you know in the hills or what they're leasing out for grazing or whatnot but that's always a great opportunity to access and it seems like there's a ton of good whitetail opportunity on that as well yeah especially when you can rattle and start pulling pulling deer off your private private onto public or from another ranch onto a block management area yeah, yeah. it's a good strategy O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop 
for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Have you ever done that, Mark, where you're rattling? No, not in, at least not in the West yet. I've definitely, you know, rattled deer off neighboring properties in Midwestern places I've found, yeah. um, for sure. But, but I feel like you guys are saying, it just seems like it would work so well out by you, just given the, the, the kind of, structure of the deer herds i've encountered um so even as you're saying all this i'm sitting here wondering maybe i finally need to move my september bow hunt and try a rut hunt for once out there just to see what that'd be <laughs> like because because it just seems like calling in general grunting rattling all that stuff i'm just betting it's probably significantly more effective than than here just because i mean we've got we've got literally 750,000, 800,000 deer hunters here in Michigan that are all rattling and calling and running around the woods yeah. all in a little section. Um, so just that in amount. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that just changes things so dramatically. These deer are just on, they're just walking a real tightrope. They're very paranoid. Um, so you can't get away with a whole lot, but it, it definitely seems like the pressure is a little bit different. The herd's a little bit different. Um, and not just in Montana. I mean, I think this probably applies to Wyoming, Colorado, the Dakotas. I mean, everywhere I've been, um, there's pockets where it's, it seems like pretty unique that are would be a lot of fun. So it's high on my list to, to try that out. Um, but to this access point. How many years have you come out to the West to hunt whitetail? So I have done it now three years three or four years um i've hunted montana three times north dakota once now i guess um and killed killed two out of three years could have killed could have killed three out of three um but was was trying to get pretty picky but all public land all just on my own solo hunting living on the back of my pickup truck parked on some public and just learning it as i go um and i i don't know if i've had a more fun hunt I mean, I really, really have been enjoying it for all the reasons we've been talking about. I mean, you see a ton of deer. You see a lot of nice deer. I haven't had to deal with a whole bunch of other hunters. It just seems like, at least at that time of the year, to our earlier conversation, most folks are focusing on mule deer or elk in September. 
Um, I seem to be the only one crazy enough to be hunting some public land river bottoms for whitetails. <laughs> and, uh, gosh, I mean, I've had an absolute blast. And, um, yeah. but the, the access thing is, is a tricky deal. And we were kind of talking about, you, you mentioned block management. There's all these different programs. That This whole thing is where I've been using Onyx probably the most myself is just figuring out where are these little pockets of state land, where are these little pockets of BLM, where are these pieces that you can get to. Um, sometimes it's a roundabout way. Like I found a spot this past year where what I was always looking on for public land whitetails on the east side was river bottom country that was kind of hard to get to, though, and close to ag field on private land. So I would just scour all the maps all over the state where I could hunt and look for these little pieces of public that would intersect some portion of the river bottom stuff where you'd have those crops nearby. And I found one spot that was a little 40-acre piece that buttoned up right into that river bottom. There was a big private land ranch on one side of it that had a bunch of what looked like probably alfalfa fields, some kind of green field. Um, But you had to walk across a really big piece of state land to get to this little piece of BLM that was on the river. It was more than a, more than a mile, might've been closer to two miles. If I remember from the road and you start up high, real high up on this big bluff. And then you had to go down like some steep canyons to get to the river bottom. It just didn't seem like something, you know, the average guy or girl would want to do on a whim. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go eyeball test it. See if it's actually as gnarly as I think it is from the map see if I can even do it. I didn't even know if you could physically get down it and get back up it, especially carrying your bow, carrying a tree stand and sticks and my backpack and all the things I needed to pull off the hunt. Um, but I, I snuck out there first just to scout it earlier in the day, like midday, found a way to navigate down this little, I don't even know what you, like a box canyon or something, just a really narrow little cut off this bluff. I had to slide down on my butt on parts of it i brought like a hiking stick to get back out on the way uh to get back out in the evening and it just ended up being a honey hole that i don't think many people either knew was there or knew that they could get to it um but once you got there you it was basically like private land i don't think anyone else wanted to get in there anyone else wanted to walk that far and you had all these deer bedded on the public land in these like brushy nasty thickets and cottonwood groves all moving out to that private land to feed. And I was seeing, I don't know, 20 to 40 deer come piling out. Um, that was, it was a cool discovery. And I found a handful of spots now like that where, um, it's, it's some really high quality hunting. As far as I'm concerned, you're not seeing, you know, it's not like you're seeing a buck like you might hope to see in Iowa. You know, guys maybe want to see these monstrous bucks in Iowa. I'm not necessarily seeing deer like that on, the, on my western whitetail hunts, but I'm seeing a lot of nice bucks. Um, is that kind of what you guys would say? Like nice quality, you know, mature-ish bucks seem to be definitely available in a lot of spots like where you're at, but maybe not a 180-inch, 300-pound buck like you might see in Iowa? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's opportunities to get into that 180s every once in a while. You hear about them in certain regions throughout the state, but for the most part, it's, you know, you'll find a good mature buck. It doesn't seem like we get the body size that, you know, you do, you see in the Midwest, but as far as antlers, like generally you can find a good four or five nice mature, you know, four to five year old deer fairly frequently if you're, you know, especially if you're going to the extent that you do there and finding these areas that no one else wants to go to. Yeah. yeah it definitely seems, definitely seems possible. 
And for most, I how, think. I was going to say, how, when you first, like, before you came out to Montana or North Dakota, how did you even pick a region? Like, how did you find an area just to get started? Did you you know, throw a dart at a map, or did you have kind of an idea of the terrain you wanted to hunt? So I, I knew kind of the, the terrain that I thought whitetails would be found in. I kind of knew that sounded like river bottoms were the way to go. So I just started looking in a couple of regions where I was planning on spending some time already for just, I was out there for some vacations with the family and started to say, okay, where's river bottoms that look like they might have whitetails. And then tried to look at them at the public land border maps and see where public land intersected with river bottom. And I went, I looked at a number of different valleys and number of different river bottoms and just tried to see which ones seemed to have a couple decent public land options. And then when I would go out for vacation one year I was out there in the summer and I was able to actually drive around and check these these spots out. So I went to one valley and just drove the roads in the evenings in July and early August and just tried to find and see if these public land spots that were adjacent to private land um, ag fields, see if there was actually a bunch of deer out there. And I went to one area, one valley, and just was not seeing the number of deer. I was seeing deer, but wasn't seeing, like, the quality deer, like the older bucks that I would be interested in hunting, didn't see them on any kind of consistent basis on or near public land. Went to another valley, another river, about uh, eh, 45 minutes, an hour away. And then all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, all sorts of nice deer, lots of deer, lots of older bucks, um, and some coming right off of public onto great big private fields right there that you could hunt right in the edge of. So that was the first spot I hunted. And then I kind of just took little rumors of what I heard, like this river is supposed to be good. This river is supposed to be good. And I picked one of them, did the same process, looked for these public pieces that might intersect river and then took, uh, just on a whim. I, uh, the most recent place I've hunted, I never had seen it before at all until I showed up to hunt it. Um, so I just had a bunch of public parcels picked out on Onyx, showed up there on day one and started driving the roads around there just looking at them with binoculars scoping it out and um did a little bit of walking and just very quickly narrowed down okay of these 10 chunks that i thought might be good kind of looks like one or two of them actually might be half decent and uh so the first year hunting that general area i didn't kill one that was last year but i kind of figured some stuff out and i could have definitely could have killed some some bucks um, and then this year I went back to the same area, narrowed down to two spots that I thought would be the best. And it, it became, you know, pick your, pick your buck. There was just a whole lot of opportunity then. So now I'm at the point though, where I feel like I've got that area so figured out. Now I'm kind of, I'm, I'm probably looking at gift horse in the mouth, but I'm thinking about trying to go find a brand new spot just cause like that process of figuring out the new area is getting yeah. to be so much fun. I almost want to be just see what the next new spot is and can I figure it out? Cause this spot almost knock on wood. I'm going to say this and if I go back, it's probably going to be either littered with other hunters or there's going to be no deer left or something, but it almost feels like it's too easy now that I figured this spot out. So I might be looking for the next adventure. I don't know. But, yeah, no, I agree. I think it makes it fun. You know, it's kind of like opening day. You just don't know what the opportunities are going to be. So it's, it's exciting when you're checking out new country. Oh yeah, it really is. Um, to to this kind of whole um, kind of describe my own story how I'm camped out on these public land spots. Uh, what's one of the coolest things I found about these kinds of hunts? At least as like a non non resident coming in to do a deal like this, you can combine 
really great deer hunting with also like a fun camping trip kind of that whole experience is something that's a little more common out there by you guys especially with all the public land national forest or blm or whatever where you can just pull off the side of the road and set up a base camp right there um i feel like there's a whole lot of neat things going on as far as like these great hunting base camps wall tent setups and all these things or like what you had down on that uh, arizona hunt zach with your guys's camp setup do you have any recommendations as far as i don't know the gear that works really well for setting up a good base camp for a hunt like this. Um, any things you've learned over the years as far as properly packing for it, properly setting it up, the best way to interior decorate your wall tent, anything like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, looking from like Eastern Montana, when I've traveled across the state, we generally will do either like tents if it's earlier in the year, but if it's in that November time, we bring a wall tent. So, what's great is you can travel and we have a couple areas that we'll plan on staying, but a lot of times we're going to go just find a piece of public ground and we're pulling off the road a little bit and we'll put up just a, you know, 12 by 12 wall tent for three to four of us and have a stove to make sure we're staying warm. And we might get, you know, we're not just camping right where we're hunting. We might get in the car and travel 20 miles or whatever, but it gives us a good base camp. And so I think the biggest thing is like, especially in later in the year in November, it can be cold and it gets dark early. So doing stuff that keeps you uh, sane during the night. So we'll have, you know, we'll have a portion of the tent that's closed off for cooking and stuff like that. And then generally we're getting back at, you know, five to six after dark and then making dinner and playing some games, have, you know, a lantern in the tent, have the fire going and we're playing card games or whatever. And then, you're going to bed pretty early, but that is the one thing is making sure you're comfortable, um, especially on, you know, these extended hunts. The last thing you want to do is make this investment to come out to do a four to five day hunt. And then you start getting tired and losing focus on day two because you're uncomfortable at night and you're cold, you know, trying to sleep in just a sleeping bag and maybe a backpacking tent. And there's plenty of people that do it that way. And I think for us, like, we've just found like if you're comfortable when you're sleeping, you're able to hunt harder longer. But earlier in the year when it's nicer, um, things that we've kind of like doing is what you're talking about is just a truck topper and being able just to have like a, your sleeping pad in there and you can be mobile. It's really nice just being able to, uh, find a spot, check it out for a couple of days. If you don't like it, load your stuff up quick and get moving to the next one. And then, pull your cooler out and pull everything out and just sleep in the back. And that gives you a little storm coverage there. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely come to like that style. That's, that's, you know, like what I've been doing and that the flexibility of it is, is so nice. When we were in, we were doing a North Dakota hunt this past year and I, I'd been hunting in Montana. I filled my tag. I met up with a friend of mine that was in North Dakota, not too far away doing the same thing. And he had been struggling, wasn't finding the deer. We thought we were going to be finding there. So I, I took one night and one morning and just scouted, trying to hit up high spots, kind of doing what we were talking about earlier, getting up on high spots, looking out over long areas and trying to see, you know, are there even the deer we want to hunt here at all? And after an evening and a morning of doing that kind of long distance glassing, I decided, you know what, I just, I don't think it's happening right now. If we had another week to really dive in, maybe we could figure out these where these deer are and maybe they're back in the cover and they're not coming out to feed where we thought they would be. But I made the decision that I think we could probably better use our last two days by just going to a brand new area where it looks like there's a bunch more open ag fields that we could get close to, 
and and glass up some deer. And so it was really easy to say, all right, camp's just in the back of the truck. Just throw you know your camp chair in there and go. It wasn't like some huge operation of tearing down a massive camp or hooking up a trailer and you know that stuff. While really nice, can sometimes make it harder for you to be nimble. And um, in some situations, that's nice to have. At least in the one I was in, that worked out perfect. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's always nice when you can be mobile. Um, and it is just so convenient because it's like you know you can only bring so much with a truck and a topper, so you don't overpack. And you can pull out and make a quick camp and set your chairs up, and then you can tear it down just as fast. Yeah. Same time though, there's yeah, you can make it. You can make it however nice you want it, really. You could just do a topper, or you can do a full, like, camper in the back of the truck, that type of camper. I don't know. Yeah. yeah just, or you can pull a little trailer. I've got a jumping jack trailer that I use. It's just a canvas tent that pops out. Or you could go full-on. You could go hard-sided, smaller yeah. trailer. Just a little more difficult to turn around and things. But you just pull off the side of the road, set that thing up, be good to go. Or you could just, like you said, be even more mobile and quick by just camping in the back of your pickup under your topper how do you like that jumping jack i've seen those and been kind of intrigued by that i like it a lot yeah it's nice and it's easy to tow nice and lightweight easy to turn around and a little bit higher off the ground so i can still take it through creek crossings and stuff if you get a little more off-road that's what i like about it i can pull my camper pretty much anywhere i don't worry about dragging it through a creek crossing or something now is that yeah. the one that we, has we a little bit well, we spent some time during bear season. I mean, that thing, it was cold and snowy, and that thing came up a mountain road that was pretty bumpy, and, it, you know, they just have them set up, so they are durable and meant to go. Really, the only constraint you have is, you know, just backing up and getting around on roads, but otherwise, like, those things are pretty solid and easy to pull with you wherever you want to go hunting. Is that is that also the one that has portion of the trailer is like open platform for you to put gear or a four-wheeler or something like that am i thinking the same one yeah that's the one they all have that set up where it folds up and then you can put gear on top or atvs or your razor or whatever you want yeah that's slick that's really slick um like throw motorcycles on or atvs yeah that's why i like it so so back to the um Back to the the wall tent though, because this is something. As much as I like my very nimble, mobile truck camper style, um, I do think I want to try one of these slightly more relaxing. I don't know, more relaxing, slightly more luxurious camping experience. Especially if I came out in November, when it'd be awfully cold. Um, I I know zero about wall tents, about the the right gear to bring along for a hunt or for a setup like that. Um, is there any specific things you found? Like, should you be bringing? I, I see lots of cots. People usually bring cots instead of sleeping on the ground with pads. Um, do you recommend something like that? Any specific models? Any specific camping uh, or cooking gear setups that worked well for you guys in the wall tent setup? Um, I'm I'm really used to minimalist camping. I'm curious to hear if there's anything from the wall tent side that's that's a little different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So like with the wall tent, you know, if it's November and we're going to be there for four or five days, we can pack a little, we can pack more stuff than if we're planning on just doing like, if we have sleep in the back of our pickup or whatever. But with ours, like it's a pretty simple tent. Um, I think we got it from Cabela's, you know, it was under a thousand bucks. And then we just got a stove, a wood stove that goes with it. And so what's nice is, you know, the biggest thing is heat when it's, when it's that cold and then get down to zero and be windy 
being able to come back and dry your boots off and just be warm is great. But then the other thing is like a cot. I seriously recommend a cot. I think ours are just, they're not ultra light or anything. They're just the Cabela's ones, but it, uh, that's just nice because it gets you up off the ground. So you're not losing all that heat from the frozen ground. And so the other thing too is storage wise, being able to take your pack or your rifle or, you know, your boots and put them underneath because you got all these cops laid out in the tent. So it helps with storage. And then cooking, really, I mean, we eat pretty good. We take, you know, one of those, just like, you know, there's a hundred different models. You know, I know it's like a Coleman two-burner stove, and I know Camp Chef has one, and there's all sorts of different models. And that, a pot and one pan, and then we usually are bringing stuff. You know, we'll bring some elk steaks if we have them, some of the just like, Easy Mac, macaroni and cheese, stuff like that that we're just cooking. And then the other thing that you can run into in a lot of these areas, if you're kind of away from towns, is water and bringing enough water. So we'll have like a five-gallon jug, plenty of water bottles and stuff like that. You're using it to clean up. You know, you'll heat up water after a couple of days and use that to clean up, but then also just cooking and stuff like that. But generally we'll pull up the back of the pickup so it's right out front of the tent and we cook kind of on there or we'll have it in the tent if we only have a couple people but then everything just gets stored in the pickup that's not in the tent and then you know definitely want camp chairs places to sit so you can play cards at night but really the biggest thing is just you know if we're going to bring a wall tent we want to be comfortable so we're going to make sure that we have something to cook with we're going to have our cots and probably have a couple camp chairs to hang out because you know you got four to five hours of dark to burn each night. So just yeah. trying to find something to stay. Yeah, that makes sense. What kind of size do you like recommend? I'm, I'm guessing maybe like two to four people. Uh, do you get like the smallest possible? I'm, I'm curious. Lots of times, like when you buy a two person backpacking tent, really that's going to be kind of a one person tent or, or like you and your wife. <laughs> but, uh, oftentimes like a two-person backpacking tent would be really 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 tight for two adult men is that kind of the same deal with wall tents like if you want to get something that's going to hold four guys you probably don't want to buy the tent they say for four because that's still gonna be too cramped is that the same kind of deal yeah especially if you're going to put a stove in it you know that stove takes up some room and you can't you can only sleep so close to it it's putting off a lot of heat so i think you know ours is a 12 by 12 and four is the max you'd want to fit and that's with putting stuff under your cots and then also putting stuff in the pickup um but you know they make these wall tents there's so many different models they make some that are like 10 by 20 just giant you have like a cooking quarters and then you have your sleeping stuff that one's much more comfortable but if you're looking like anywhere from two to four you could definitely get away with like a 12 by 12 something around that nature um and then just planning on storing some of your stuff in your pickup outside but it's it's incredible because now you know you see a lot of guys with these teepees and stuff like that um i know eric has one and you can put a stove in there and you can get these what they call like eight to ten man teepees really you're sleeping like maybe four or four four in there but they're just much lighter you can take them more places they're pretty quick to set up um so there's a lot of different variations of it I think kind of the common thing when you're using them late season is just having a heat source and being able to put a stove in there is really the biggest convenience factor. Yeah, those those tents are funny. Like we talked about the TV tents. They rate them as how many people can they domino in 
here's a regular size of a person. How many people can we domino in this thing? And so it's an eight-person tent, but really that's like a three-person with all the gear you have yeah. Yeah. comfortably, maybe four. So, yeah, they always rate them by how many they can, like, tetracize into the bottom yeah. of the tent. But I don't think the wall tents are like that. They're just more like 12 by 12 or something. Yeah. They're yeah. rated by people they can... They yeah. yeah, they generally recommend how many can fit in there, but yeah. okay. I've found like with a you know, a ten by ten, twelve twelve by twelve, three is comfortable, four you're getting tight, but you can do it. Yeah. So for someone now I'm kinda of thinking in my head about right we're kind of laying out the things to be thinking about if you're going to come out to do your first western whitetail hunt in a state like montana north dakota wyoming something like that um we've talked through a lot of stuff when it comes to the tactics that are going to work we've talked a little bit about the camping another thing that would be on my mind if i had never been out there before let's say in that november time frame for the rut i'd be a little worried about getting around and like the conditions um if it's you know, I've been out there on some of these roads in the spring when they get super, super muddy. Um, is there anything that someone should be thinking about as far as the vehicles they bring or like worrying about snow and wind? Should you bring studs or something like that or chains? Uh, as far as that kind of stuff for a November hunt, do we have to worry about that kind of weather in the northern Rockies, northern Great Plains? Or, uh, you know, am I being an over paranoid Michigander? Yeah, depending on where you're going, there are definitely places you can get into pickles when the when the rain or snow start coming down. So yeah, you definitely should be thinking about bringing a high clearance four by four vehicle. I mean, if you're looking anywhere in eastern Montana where you got gumbo and that bentonite type soil that gums up your tires, that can get really nasty if you get like a one inch wet snow or just a, one, a half an inch rain. Sometimes you have to be prepared to just like let that dry or let it freeze the next morning so yeah i'd bring change i mean if you're looking at like fort peck area eastern montana type hunting yeah have a four-wheel drive have good tires yeah bring change just to be safe yeah i think the good tires is a huge one um regardless where you're at in the state if you're on these mountain roads up here there's rocks all over you know they're the cliff sides are breaking or whatever and then in eastern montana you still have rocks even though it's a lot of gumbo and the last thing you want to do is have to change a tire and then not have a spare. Probably should go back to town and get another, get it patched or get another one. So having good, like, you know, 10 ply tires that are pretty durable. Um, I've had to use chains a couple times this year. And then the other thing is a shovel. Um, snow, mud, whatever it is, you can get stuck in some areas and have to dig yourself out. So, you know, I think the key things are definitely having a good 4x4, four four, make sure you have some good, decent clearance if you're going to be going through some cricks and stuff like that. Good tires, chains never hurt, and a shovel are pretty important there. Yeah. Or if you've scouted, there's county roads that are graveled well. If you can, you can always develop your plan around sticking to those and then camping off of those gravel roads. Then you can be pretty safe. You don't have to worry so much about gumbo and everything. So yeah. there, there is a way to do it where you can be safe about not having to get stuck. You just have to develop your plan around sticking to those graveled county roads more yeah. than anything. Yeah, and this is this is really focusing on kind of that later rifle season when the weather can be variable and you got anything from you know we've had in November it's been 60 degrees and raining or it can be zero and snowing. So mountains or eastern Montana, it's if you're going to be venturing around, it's not a bad idea to be prepared. But like Eric said, you can find these county roads where you, they'll be maintained and you'll be pretty safe if you stick to those. Yeah. 
Is there anything else now that we're talking about it, like for a first-time Western hunter? And I guess, you know, we're talking about whitetail hunters, but maybe even someone who's trying one of the other species. Are there any other big, big, just, I don't know what I would call it, something that you really want to make sure you keep in the back of your mind if you're coming out here to try something like this for the first time? Um, I mean, I know there's a million ways you could go with this, but uh, if there's anything that jumped out to you, like, don't forget to bring a shovel. That was a great one. Um, any other ones like that you'd want to leave someone with to keep in mind if they wanted to give this a shot? Uh, you might bring a gun cleaning kit if you're if you're rifle hunting, just in case the same situation you get muddy and you drop your rifle and you get mud stuck up the barrel or snow. It's always good to have a little yeah, yeah. snake or something. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like, definitely doing the research ahead of time on the areas you're going to be hunting and making sure you know the regs. You know, like I said earlier, there are some areas that are permit areas and they could be right next to them. They might be the only one in that region. And you run into that with mule deer specifically, but if you're coming out to Montana, you have the opportunity to do both. So I think the biggest thing is just making sure you know all the different hunting districts. And this is talking more Montana specifically, but one thing we've had come up recently that we haven't had to worry about is CWD. And so we have some of these areas where they want you to check them in. You have to be careful on how you're transporting this animal and just some different regulations around that. And so that's something we haven't had to worry about, but even, you know, as residents who are hunting every year, we are now having to educate ourselves and make sure we know, you know, where we're at exactly based on, you know, if we're going to be traveling through or whatnot. Yeah. So you guys have a new or relatively new layer on Onyx that shows CWD cases, right? How does, how does that work? What exactly does it show on that front? Just so I think that is helpful for people that might be going to a new area, need to figure out, do they need to worry about that or not, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we worked with QDMA on that one. And so they've been collecting those different counties that have these CWD cases. And really what the idea on that one is, is to highlight that, you know, if you want to hunt in that county, you need to do your research and make sure you know what the regulations are. And so it's a nationwide layer, but you can kind of look at them. The one thing with it is like, you know, trying to get the data, it's not going to be, you know, it's tough to keep it current. You got to make sure you know on which days you're going based on the year when it's updated. But the biggest thing is if you see it, it'll tell you, you know, if it's an area of interest or if it's, if it's in that County, then it allows you to, you know, contact Montana FWP and be able to, figure out what the regulations are, what you should be looking for, how you should handle the, the animal, um, and things like that. And so it's a good starting place to kind of see if, you know, if you're throwing a dart at the map and you're going to go hunt this unit, just so you have all the information and you make sure that you can uh, be confident and not have to worry about any of the regulations around that. Yeah, yeah and I think as a responsible yeah. hunter, if you, if you see that there's ever been a CWD case in that county, you should take it upon yourself to bone that animal out and saw the skull plate to where you're not transporting that CWD into another area, especially if you're going to take it back to wherever your home state is. Yeah. Better, better safe than sorry. And, uh, to, to the early point, there are certainly a lot of regulations around it that you just don't want to, you don't want to make a mistake there. So I think that's very handy to be able to get that information all in one nice place. And I guess that's kind of a nice, uh, segue into, Kind of the last thing I thought would be worth touching on before we wrap things up, which is just, 
you know, I, I've talked a lot about how I've been using Onyx over the years, just chatting and chatting about it on the podcast and whatnot. But are there any specific things that you think that whitetail guys or girls should know specifically about that tool? Any features maybe that are overlooked? Any layers that people maybe aren't taking advantage of as, as much as they should? Um, uh, there's a whole lot to it, so I think it's easy for people to miss things. Is there anything that jumps out to you guys that we should leave folks with to check out next time they're on there? Yeah, we don't see enough people using sharing in the app. You can share waypoints with people. So I even think of like the Midwest when you, if you have a buddy come to your place that you lease or whatever, all you got to do is share a waypoint of a tree stand with them. And you might be able to send them out to that tree stand without ever having to like take them out there. You just like give them the waypoint and draw a line of where they're supposed to walk. And you don't even have to walk them out there the next morning. You can just turn them loose and they can be very confident that they can get to that tree stand as long as they have that waypoint and yeah. that line. Get to it. That's huge. It's a lot better yeah, and then than I mean, saying, to add on, uh, sorry, go ahead. You know, to add on that, the other thing you can do is sharing with loved ones. You know, just if you're going to travel out to Montana and being able to share it with, you know, maybe a hunting buddy so someone knows the general area that you are, maybe it's just where your camp is, you know, you're obviously not going to share your hunting locations with everyone, but being able to share them with your close hunting buddies and your loved ones, just for peace of mind, um, is another, you know, great way to use it. Um, definitely when you're pointing out different areas, if you're sharing a location, but the one we find a lot is a lot of folks sharing it just for peace of mind. So someone knows where they're at. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to do. Just make sure I <laughs> make sure you don't do what I've done the past one year. I uh, had been telling my wife where I was every day, and then I switched up my plans and moved to a new area and didn't have cell phone service for a whole day. And more than twenty four hours passed by from the last time she'd heard from me, and she, she kind of got worried. Had the cops go check on my campsite. I wasn't there anymore. <laughs> so don't don't make the mistake I've made. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was a tough lesson to learn. But um but yeah, I mean there's those things you mentioned are, are all things I've done. Very helpful. The the sending a text you can just text a, a waypoint to to a friend and that works a whole lot better than saying, Okay, park at the big oak tree, follow the you know, the glowing tabs for hundred yards, then you gotta cross the creek, go left fifty yards, wait for the owl to hoot, and then you know you're there. I mean that's <laughs> that doesn't work all that well. <laughs> yeah. The the, the yeah. shared waypoint yeah. improves things dramatically. So uh, I'm I'm appreciative of the tool you guys have put out there, and uh, and I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about it and share some of your experiences out there chasing chasing whitetails in the promised land. Um, I'll be back this year. I'm I'm looking forward to it. So anything you guys want to wrap up with? Any other final things that uh, people should look out for as far as future features or? Uh, Maybe maybe talk through exactly where they can find Onyx uh, online if, if people aren't familiar with it, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, if, I mean, you can always, if you haven't tried the app, you can just install it. You get seven days free. So you can try everything out for free, and then if you enjoy it, you can purchase one state or you can purchase all 50. And um, Features coming out, I mean, I think one big thing I want to get to before that is we, you know, we have nationwide public and private boundaries and land ownership names and so the one thing that commonly happens is we're getting these from the individual counties and so it can be outdated and if that's the case we do appreciate it when customers send those in and report those errors because that just helps us be more accurate but also on top of that you know requested features we definitely listen to them um, it helps us make a better product so 
we look at all the customers as boots on the ground for us, just helping, you know, try to get a product that works for everyone, no matter where you're hunting. If you're hunting whitetails in the mountains of Western Montana, or if you're hunting them over in Michigan by you. And so looking at it, some of the feedback we've got is um, being able to just folks want to be able to share more. And so this is something on our radar. Um, we're working on it and definitely will be one of the features coming up is just being able to share more of your data. So multiple waypoints, maybe tracks, shapes, stuff like that. And so you can share those with like a hunting buddy if you're sharing a property that you're hunting on. Or if you want to go share, like, you know, we want to share to you, Mark, some of our whitetail hunting spots in Montana to be able to share like almost like a playlist. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, wind and weather, we released that this fall and we're going to continue to expand upon that and provide more information, some forecasting stuff and stuff like that that'll come out here in the future. And then, you know, the, really we have a couple other things that we're keeping under wraps, but I think the biggest thing is if there are features that folks want to see, you know, they can always, we, we see the ones that they put on our social media and ask about that. And we definitely take those into account and we pass those up the chain and make sure our engineers hear them. And we start to kind of prioritize and see what folks want to have in the app. That's great. Yeah. Anything you did? Yeah. I like your story. Yeah. I like your story, Mark on, uh, how you're using public land to get down to these river bottoms and taking a one or two mile hike. That's, that's a cool adventure. If you're, if you're coming from out East or Midwest, coming to Montana, coming to North Dakota, I think that's a really cool adventure to be able to come out and camp and do those hikes every day, set up a tree stand, learn what the whitetails are doing in the area. Maybe there's an opportunity to do a five mile. Maybe you can find some public land that's a five mile hike down to a river where you actually got to set up a base camp and then maybe have a whole square mile of river bottom all to yourself. I guarantee in September in Montana, whitetail hunting with the bow, you likely have that all to yourself unless there's of course private landowners who's hunting it or yeah. something. But yeah, I really like that strategy that you just described. Um, and you could really make an adventure out of it. So, Oh yeah. And yeah. So I just encourage people to think like that, have a plan, get on on X and have a couple different options. Check them out. Like you're saying, and yeah, get out and have an adventure. There definitely, there's definitely an opportunity in in states like Montana and your neighboring states there to to take your whitetail hunting to just a different place. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I love these new experiences, and you can take something that you love a lot, like a whitetail deer, and then experience hunting that animal in just a completely different situation. Um, whether it's backpacking in or hiking into a river bottom, or just being in a wide open different landscape and seeing different places, it's it's a really cool thing that, I mean, anyone who's listened to Wired Hunt knows that I've encouraged this many times before, but I'll just say it again. You know, go out there and, and experience these different things. Push yourself to to new areas, to new types of hunting. It's going to make you a better hunter. You're going to have a whole lot of fun doing it, and uh, a little bit of adventure in your life is uh, is not going to hurt anything at all. So um, that's my little pep talk for the day. And uh, and Eric, Zach, I just I appreciate you taking the time to chat. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. We'll have to do it again soon, and hopefully, when I'm out there next time for hunt, maybe we can uh, circle up and uh, and have a have a cold beverage and, and swap hunt stories again. Absolutely, looking yeah. forward to it. I'm looking forward to the backcountry whitetail hunt. It's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you, Mark. And that's another episode in the books. Uh, one quick uh, additional piece of information about the shed rally. 
giveaway that we talked about earlier in the episode. If you don't have a Wired Hunt hat or shirt yet, I meant to mention this earlier, but we've got a little discount code going on for you. If you do want to pick something up, 20% off Wired Hunt hats and shirts over at TheMeatEater.com store. If you use the promo code W2HSHED, that's W, the number 2, the letter H, and then the word SHED, S-H-E-D. Use that code to get 20% off Wired Hunt hats and shirts. And uh, then as we talked about earlier, just wear that gear during Shed Rally and uh, you'll be entered to win in the giveaway. So thank you for listening. Thanks for being patient and understanding of the weird audio thing there in the first half. I know that didn't sound great. Um, Hopefully for those that did stick around for it, you found our conversation interesting. And I promise we will be uh, fixing that issue in the future. So thank you for listening. Thanks for everything. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.